From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. There's data that I've, I've read uh, a few years ago that some of the for-profit prisons actually forecast how many prison beds they're going to need to build in the future by, by looking at failure trends of fourth graders in the inner city. Welcome back to the Miami Log Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. Over the more than nine months since the coronavirus began spreading in the United States, Jails, prisons, and detention facilities have been hardest hit. Miami Law's Innocence Clinic Director Craig Trochino takes a look at the subject. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Craig. Welcome back to The Explainer. Good morning. Thanks for having me back. So a lot has changed, and not for the better, since we recorded the Easter in Prison episode last season. According to the Marshall Project... Almost 1,300 prisoner deaths have been attributed to the coronavirus in the U.S. prison system since the first death on March 26. Just in the past week, that number has risen by 2%. Where is the system failing or, or where isn't it failing, maybe, is a better question? Well, I, I, I think the whole country's failing right now. You know, according to the CDC, there were 500,000 cases in the last seven days. 20 states set records in the last seven days, according to the CDC. If we're rounding a corner, there's going to be a semi-truck in the lane coming right at us uh, around that corner. Um, you know, so everything's getting worse <clears throat> all over the country, and that includes the prisons. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and at the risk of uh, making reference to a cliche cultural uh, icon, winter is coming. Yes. Oof. Um, well, if we're just looking at the federal uh, system in the early months of the pandemic, 11,000 prisoners applied for com compassionate release, yet only less than one percent were were approved. Why are they so my or why were they so miserly with the with the compassionate release? And has that changed? Well, you know, there's the old saying that if you're a hammer, the entire world looks like a nail. Uh, people in prisons and in charge of prisons are charged with and historically, uh, you know, do their jobs in order to keep people in the prison. Um, so um, their paradigm is not figuring out how to let people out before their sentence is over. Their paradigm is how to keep them in. And that carries over to this, I, I, I think, um, you know, but there's a, you know important thing uh, 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 mentioned in the compassionate release, uh, and that's the word compassion. Um, and so when you're advocating for your position, uh, that zeal sometimes by necessity of the adversarial system erases compassion from, from the calculus. Um, there have been more releases recently, uh, but they're still quite miserly, uh, as, as you put it on it. Um, and there's two different kinds of, uh, of releases that we're looking at. Let's just talk about the federal system. You know, one, you can have your sentence like converted to home confinement, which is essentially house arrest or in a halfway house. Um, and early on, those that they weren't really doing that. I have a former client, uh, in prison in, in, uh, in Fort Worth at a medical facility. Um, and he's at risk and has maybe, I think five years left on his sentence and was trying to get the, the conversion through compassionate through, you know, for compassion purposes to, uh, home confinement. They told him everything was going to go fine. They even had a, a person go out to vi a site visit at the home he was going to be living at. He thought he was getting out the next day. And then all of a sudden they said, you know what? BOP said no. Uh, and they did it to him twice. 
Um, and you know, and he's in a medical facility where they, uh, in Fort Worth, where they they have sort of, you know, tents outside that he can see out there through his window where they're housing people and bringing people in from there. In fact, uh, um, in one of the, uh, um, uh, I think it was the Marshall Project, uh, article, uh, there was the, the lady who, who died, um, of, of COVID and she was also suffering from cancer and they sent her to that same exact same facility where she ended up passing away. Mm-hmm. Well, you think that. It it would be cheaper to send them home if you're talking about people that are in sort of having long term medical problems, but no sense there, right? Well, you know, cost is <laughs> that's a, that's an interesting you know factor in in all of this, uh, you know. And if you want to raise the question of you know. <clears throat> uh, outsourcing medical care and privatization of prisons uh, and that sort of thing. Um, you know, that's an interesting economic discussion. I think in our last one, uh, when, uh, when we did it in, in, in April, when we talked about this very early on, uh, I made reference to the old, you know, economics, uh, experiment that, uh, they did in, in England during the time when they're sending inmates to, to Australia. Uh, when you put a profit motive on something, uh, then your goal is to minimize costs, maximize profit. Um, and my undergraduate degree happens to be in economics, so I'm a little bit of a dork on this subject. Um, and economics is one of the only ins- only disciplines that I can think of where the word exploit is a positive term, right? You exploit an opportunity, you exploit profit, you exploit you know costs, um, and it's a perfectly rational point of view for an economic entity to maximize profit, um, but. In the prison system and with healthcare and healthcare in the prison system, you can't forget that there are human beings on the other side of that, uh, on the other side of that equation. The, you know, they're not just numbers. They're, they're humans, mm-hmm. uh, flawed, maybe, um, uh, you know, violent, possibly, uh, but human beings nonetheless. They're also fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, and so forth. Um, and so, like I said in the last, uh, episode, uh, where we talked about this, if the government is going to, take over the responsibility uh, and the mantle of incarcerating people for some, for some norm violation or some criminal violation, they also have to, therefore, take on the responsibility of caring for them in a humane way. Um, because uh, we do still have the, at least the last time I checked, I'll have to look this after we get off the phone, but I think we still have the Eighth Amendment. Um, uh, um, I'm sorry, that was overly sarcastic, uh, but it does, it, but, but, you know, but it does still exist. So there are conditions at which the confinement becomes a violation of that. Um, uh, I think the, um, you know, and, 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 and facilities need to be mindful of that. And I think, I think as a, as a, as a culture in general, we need to be mindful of that. There's been a coarsening of attitude, uh, over recent history where people are just, um, they seem to be displaying a, a level of callousness, um, to, you know, to our fellow brothers and sisters in, in our society that, um, I don't know that I've ever seen in, in my, uh, uh 53 years, uh, on this planet. Mm. Um, well, aren't something like 60% of, uh, Americans, America's prisons, for profit and with with outsourced healthcare and and how is that factoring in differently during the pandemic than it was pre pre-pandemic 
I, I like I said, they're they're economic entities. Mm-hmm. So uh, they, you know, there's there's a baseline rationality of behavior in economic entities, and that and it's totally rational to maximize profit, and minimize costs. So I don't know that that beha- if that if that paradigm is necessarily changed from pre-COVID to post-COVID, uh, but the results of it are becoming manifest because it takes money to care for somebody properly, um, you know, uh, especially in, you know, in advanced stages of, of COVID. We've got ventilators, we've got intubation, we've got intensive care sort of facilities. Those are very, very expensive, uh, even in the, you know, even in the best possible situation. Um, so as they get more and more expensive, someplace, some along, somewhere along the line, the economic entity is going to have to try and cut costs. Um, and it's, it's easier to do when you're dealing with a number instead of a, a you know, a, a living, breathing human being. Well, that, that kind of maybe the part that I don't understand if your per head cost goes way up because you're testing, because, you know, you need PPE, all these other things, and you're hospitalizing people wouldn't, it seems economically let all the people go that, you know, you can compassionate release just to cut your overhead down. Well, yes, that would be um, a one way of, of doing it, but you know, they're paid per bed. Um, you know, there's, there's data that I've, I've read uh, a few years ago that some of the for-profit prisons actually forecast how many prison beds they're going to need to build in the future by, by looking at failure trends of fourth graders in the inner city, which I find astounding, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you get X amount per person you have in the prison and you let that person out, you're not getting X amount anymore. Right. So even if the costs go up for one person, you know, there's a business decision made at some point that it is still a rational thing to do to keep the person in there, even though that one individual's cost might increase. Um, you know, again, the, the, you know, we can have a rational conversation about the benefits or not of making certain governmental functions uh, profit motive based or not. Um, and that's, that's, you know, that's a whole different discussion than the one we're having, but that's a rational discussion. I mean, that's a discussion to have for sure. Um, but in this particular circumstances, uh, regardless of who's, you know, who's, you know, running the particular facility, they're still human beings. Um, and they're still in, in our meaning the government's charge. And I said our charge because, you know, and ideally the government is us. And so these, these individuals are being incarcerated essentially in our name. Right. Um, but they're still human beings. Right. And at the risk of being, you know, uh, you know, tying in the, the last one from, uh, you know, Eastern prison at the risk of being, you know, overly religious on it. Um, you know, in Matthew 25, Jesus Christ said, how you, how you, how you treat the least among us, you treat me. And I think it's a fair thing to say that people in prison are in fact the least among us or some of the least among us. And we don't treat them very well. No. Um, early on in the pandemic, it was thought, oh, they're safer in prison where we can, can control, where we can control the environment. Well, 
that hasn't seemed to uh, play out very well. I, I don't know if you're looking at by state or whatever, if the prison infection rate is higher than the general population uh, rate, but still bad. Uh, I, well, I, I don't know. I think there's uh, uh, like 16,600 infections in Florida out of 80, around 80,000 prisoners. Um, I haven't looked at the rest of the rest of the country. Um, you know, there's state facilities. See, now we have, we, well, you know, we have the state facilities and we have federal facilities and we have different levels of incarceration and different stages of incarceration. Um, uh, so we have one aspect where there's people who are sentenced to prison and they are serving terms and they're sick or at risk of becoming sick um, and don't want the five, seven, eight, 10 year sentence to be turned into a life sentence because of COVID or death sentence. And then you have folks who are incarcerated, who can't make bail, who are awaiting trial. And you have many of them who are getting sick and some of them who are dying before they've even been convicted of anything, uh, which is an additional problem. But the idea that prison is safer is just bonkers. Uh, in my view, if prison were safer, then the bars should be designed to keep people out instead of keep people in. I don't think anybody with a rational brain, even in the slightest, would say, you know what? I think I'd rather be in jail right now because it's a safer place for me. Not going to happen. Right. Um, and so that's that's just a, a, a just an absolute. I can't. I, I think the legal, the, the specific legal term for that is indeed bonkers. Um, uh, you know, and it, and there's examples of this, right? Because um, uh, um, you know, my colleague Professor Peltz has the the program where she goes to the prison and she teaches with students, uh, the inmates, legal writing, mm-hmm. uh, so they can do their their pro se uh, petitions more efficiently and and successfully. Because you know, once you're in once you're in prison, you you no longer have the right to counsel. Um, and one of her students, a guy named John C. Uh, uh, Barnett, got sick. Um, nobody told his family. He would speak to his sister every Sunday for the 30 years he'd been in prison. Uh, he, she stopped getting his calls. She had no idea. And then finally, somebody, they sent him to, he gets COVID. They sent him to an, a private hospital. And somebody at the hospital had the compassion to call her at the very end and say, look, your brother is intubated. He's on a respirator and he's in critical care and he's dying. And then he died. So, you know, the, the compassion part, nobody at the prison ever bothered calling her to tell her brother's sick. She never got the chance to say goodbye mm-hmm. or have any last words with him. Um, and she probably wouldn't even have known he was on his deathbed had somebody at the hospital not decided to call her. And she's an attorney in Ohio, so she knows how to get the information and she couldn't get it. So imagine the thousands and thousands and thousands of parents, brothers, sisters, loved ones who are on the outside worried about their people on the inside. Just because someone is in prison doesn't mean they don't have people someplace else around the world who loves them and is worried about their safety. Mm-hmm. So if, if you could go to sleep tonight and wake up tomorrow and there was one change throughout the, the incarceration system, federal, state, local, everything, what would it be? End of, of, uh, for profit prisons or like, what's that, what's your top of your wish list in prison reform? Um, wow. Um, 
Well, specifically with the, with the COVID thing, I would like to see um, more robust ways of getting compassionate release. In the state of Florida, there is not the mechanism in federal court that allows for compassionate release does not exist in Florida. Um, I have I have a client in the Innocence Clinic who's 80 years old. He's got a couple of different kinds of cancer. Um, he's at risk um, and he's got, uh, I think, 18 months left on his sentence. And there's there's just no way to, to get him out other than go through the lengthy process of post-conviction relief. Um, right. Um, so a robust way of having, you know, cases reviewed on a compassionate basis for release when you're no, when you no longer pose, you know, any threat, you know, an 80 year old guy is not a threat to anybody, um, except for, you know, maybe who, somebody who washes the bedpans when he ends up in the hospital. Um, beyond that, I think, you know, ending for-profit prisons, I think would be a huge step. I mean, so, I mean, globally, that would be, that would be my wish list. Um, I, I've, I've been in stark opposition to for-profit prisons um, since they first uh, came on the scene. Yeah, it does seem to be kind of a recipe for mishandling. Well, great. Another Sturmundrang episode of The Explainer. Yeah, sooner or later, we're going to have to touch on an uplifting topic. I know. Spring somebody. Give me a great innocent (laughs) story. Let's come back and talk about that and smile through the whole thing. That would be great. All right, my friend. I'll see you around. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Craig. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer. If you love our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Ugez. Today's episode is brought to you by Miami Law's new compliance concentration and area of focus for those looking to become proficient in the complex regulatory framework of business and industry. For more information, visit www.law.miami.edu forward slash academics forward slash concentrations.